Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. This morning's scripture comes from Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Deidre. Okay, so we are continuing our study in the book of Haggai. It's uh, been an encouraging study, a challenging study. Haggai has been about getting the people of Israel who have been brought back from exile back to work building the temple. That project of getting them back to work to building that temple was not just because God wanted a house, but because that temple represented the identity of those people. It was the place where Israel knew God and made God known. And so focusing the people on rebuilding the temple was an act of renewing and encouraging and restoring a people who, have be, who had become quite afraid that they had a future quite afraid of their existence. And that is why we have, have picked this image of the tree stump with the tree coming up out of it, because the message of Haggai is that God's will is to bring renewal to his people. There is no situation, there is no dilemma that we can face that God, by his sovereign grace and power, cannot renew us. He can bring new life out of even a tree stump, In Christ, we know he can bring new life out of death itself. And so we come to the book of Haggai, entering that place where Israel was ready to hear a word of renewal, a word of encouragement. And we have heard several of those. Some have been more stern and some have been more sweet. But all of them have been about getting God's people back, restored and renewed in their walk and in their mission. Last week especially, we we looked at the the situation of God's people having gotten back to work with the temple, having worked on that for about two months, coming to a place where the obedience was becoming very hard and discouraging, where they recognized that what they were building was not going to be a temple that would compare to the beautiful structure that Solomon built several hundred years before. And so God's people had become greatly discouraged. We saw last week that God, God's initial answer to that discouragement was first to recognize their discouragement, to allow them to know that their God knows what they are going through. He showed sympathy to them. But then second, he worked to refocus them back on what they should be focused on, which is not the, the temple and their work with their hands, but the fact that the God who has covenanted with them and who has promised his spirit to be in their midst, has not moved, has not become discouraged. And so they are to ground themselves 
in the fact that God is with them. And with that grounding, they are then called to get back to work, to focus on doing the next thing. Well, the passage that we have in front of us continues God's response to the people facing discouragement. It is, I think, perhaps the biggest answer, the most significant answer that he gives to these people who are facing discouragement. They have been in what is called the day of small things, where everything that they did was small and seemed insignificant and almost seemed futile. I mean, they could tell from the very beginning what they were doing, what they were working on, was not going to compare. It was almost going to be a laughingstock to the temple that came before them. And so as they are living in the days of small things, knowing that everything that they are doing is hardly significant, hardly going to add up to anything, and even in the best possible scenario is going to be inferior, you can imagine that there was a, an experience of futility falling upon these people as they obeyed. The question, what is the point, what is the good of putting all of our energy and our resources into this project when we know the end is already determined? It is a futile effort. Futility. Do you guys struggle with the the feeling of futility when You have obedience, long obedience, thankless obedience in front of you. Do you face the futility of remaining obedient and faithful in your workplace when you see all of the people getting success, all of the people getting promotions, all of the people making friends and going up are sacrificing their integrity left and right? Do you struggle with the futility in your marriage? Sometimes it seems like you you give each and every day, you give all of yourself, but nothing seems to be reciprocated. The marriage seems to be hollowing out. Why not give up on it? Perhaps you've experienced futility in school. You have hard semesters. You have a tough class. You need the grade to get on. Why don't I just get the answers from the person that took the test before me? And we think about cheating in relationships. We want to be loved. We want to have that fellowship of that one person who has shown interest in us. Do we Give up on our sexual purity to have the reward of that relationship. It feels futile to continue to pursue what what God tells us about sexual purity when it seems to be holding us out from the relationship that we so desperately want, the belonging that we desire. We can speak even larger about our country. You can read the news and you can just feel like Being an evangelical Christian in this country is becoming increasingly futile. Perhaps we should be changing our tactics, changing our methods. Futility is a major poison on our obedience. It it calls us to quit. It calls us to sacrifice our integrity. It, It makes us stumbling stones to others when we succumb to it. And so God's answer is so important for for. Haggai's people and for us today because God is going to give us the answer 
to defeat the futility of the obedience of the small days, of the small things. He is going to ground his people in his sovereignty. He is going to remind us that God's sovereignty renews our hope in every circumstance. How can we know that our faithfulness isn't futile? What confidence can we have that getting to work, that doing the right thing when nobody notices is going to be worthwhile and rewarding? How do we know doing the right thing is still right when it costs us something precious? The answer to that is simply God's sovereignty. That we are obeying a God who is sovereign. And that means that in every circumstance, our obedience will not be found futile. In the book of Haggai, we see that faithfulness to God is never futile. In fact, as we go through this passage, God is going to give us three assurances from God's sovereignty that renews our hopes. So if you have your handout, we can go through this text piece by piece. We're going to see three assurances from God's sovereignty that renews our hope in every circumstance. The first assurance that renews our hope is that God is always in control. God is always in control. This uh, prophetic speech comes with God saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of of hosts. In fact, as you listen to Deirdre read the text, the Lord of hosts in these four verses was said repeatedly. In four verses, we heard that God, the Lord of hosts, says this six times. This is one of the highest concentrations of this title for God in the whole Old Testament. I didn't do the, the statistical analysis, but Haggai's short book and his usage of the phrase Lord of Hosts or the title Lord of Hosts probably puts it in the first or second most highest used descriptions of God by, by verse count in the whole Bible. Why does Haggai, why does God want to stress again and again to his people, I am the Lord of Hosts that is speaking to you? Why is the the phrase, the Lord of hosts, what he wants to repeat like a hammer to, 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 to drive the nail of who God is into these people's minds. Well, as we think about that, let us first see a description of the Lord of hosts. If you go to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, you will find an account where the king of Syria is trying to do battle with the king of Israel, but he continually is frustrated. His plans are, uh, are, are, are discovered again and again, and he is not able to be successful. And the king, so confused that Israel is able to subvert and stop his plans of conquest, asks, what is going on? I said, well, there's a man in Israel named Elisha who is able, by God, to hear what you were saying in your bedroom. And he is telling the king of Israel all of your plans. So the king of Syria determines that he's going to take his army against the prophet Elisha. And Elisha is sleeping in some little country town in Israel. 
he wakes up with his servant one morning and he looks out across the horizon and the Syrian army is all around his town. This entire army is ready to take Elisha out, to get rid of Elisha completely. And Elisha's servant is full of terror as he sees the swords and the shields and all the menacing faces in this army. But Elisha comforts his servant by saying this to him. He said, do not be afraid, 2 Kings 6.16, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. These are the hosts, the armies of the Lord. And they are far greater and far more powerful than the armies of any king. These armies are at the Lord's disposal. And so when he is called the Lord of hosts, it is just another way of saying he is Lord Almighty. The Lord of hosts is the one who can do whatever he wants because his force and his power cannot be thwarted. He is the Lord Almighty. And before we go on, I think it is worth taking a connection to the New Testament. Does anybody recall what Jesus said as he was arrested on the night of his betrayal? He told the soldiers who were arresting him that if he wanted, he could ask his father to send 12 legions of soldiers. You see, Jesus had the vision of this army of hosts all around him all the time. The Lord of hosts, who is Jesus, forewent his almighty armies to be put on a cross for us. What amazing grace. He is the Lord of hosts, we see in this passage, but we also see that he is sovereign. If we go through the book of Haggai, it is impressive how uh, God reveals the completeness of his sovereignty. In chapter 1, verse 10, we see that God is sovereign over the weather. What the weather is doing is up to God's will. We see in verse 11 of chapter 1 that he is in control completely of the productivity of the crops and the animals and all the human laborers. Whether their work succeeded or was small was in God's hands. We see in chapter 2 verse 7 that God's sovereignty is over the nations. In verse 8 that his sovereignty is over all wealth. All the silver and all the gold is mine. And in verse 9 we see that the future... The entire future is in God's sovereign control. But then, perhaps most challenging for us as modern uh, people to, to make sense of, if you look at verse, chapter 1, verse 14, we also see that the will of individuals and of all the people are under the sovereign power and control of of God. Let's read chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, 
and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Here Haggai is showing us that even the obedience of the people is due to God stirring their spirits to obey. Haggai holds forth an incredibly sovereign God, a God who is in control of all of these things. And it is because he is in control that he is Lord Almighty. Now, as we talk about the sovereignty of God, we must not omit another piece, another side of this discussion. Because we, we recognize that Haggai holds up God's sovereignty. But as we look in this passage, we also must recognize that he upholds human responsibility. He upholds both. He doesn't question that the two fit together. In, in chapter 2, verse 5, we are told uh, God commands his people, work, work. He calls them to do, to respond, to obey. And yet in verse 6, the, 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 stuff, the, the, the task that they are set to work on, God says, I will. So we have both human responsibility being commanded to work, but then we're also told that God's sovereignty is the, is, the, is the way that God's plan will be accomplished. How do we put God's sovereignty and human responsibility together? It's a question that confounds us. And there are many different camps within Christianity in what to do with the fact that we have a sovereign God, but that we also have human responsibility. Are sovereignty and human responsibility, can they go together? Yes. How? I don't know. (laughs) That's above my pay grade. I can tell you, from Scripture, that the Bible neither diminishes the sovereignty of God nor denies that man's will is real, free, and responsible. Those two things are held up in Scripture all the way through. And they are brought together in fascinating ways in particular verses. We can go to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, and hear these words from Joseph saying to his brothers, who we know betrayed Joseph. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Do you see how that verse is talking about the human actions of the brothers doing exactly what they wanted to do, and even doing it out of evil intent? And at the same time, Joseph recognizes that the same thing that the brothers did was also done according to God's sovereign plan and purpose, but for a totally different reason. God's brothers were acting out of evil, and God was working through those brothers to bring good. But the two are brought together, and Joseph sees no tension. Even more, when we turn to the book of Acts, We hear Peter say this to the people, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Again, we have human actors doing exactly what human actors want to do and being held responsible for those actions 
while at the same time, all of that being done exactly to plan under God's sovereignty. These are difficult things to reconcile in the human mind, but we must recognize if we are going to be biblical, if we are going to let the Bible tell us what is true, we must affirm compatibilism. That God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. And they are compatible not by making God's sovereignty less than complete, and it is not compatible by making human uh, responsibility less than real. The two go together. I believe that the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, puts this together in about the best way possible. We are told in chapter 3, paragraph 1, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What, God, what, what, what the Westminster Confession of Faith is trying to do is take these verses and tell us that God's sovereignty is absolutely true, but it is true in a way that does not defeat true human will. But that true human will is in no way able to trump or defeat God's sovereignty. They are put together compatibly. So we must, I think, as we think about this dilemma... Be careful about subjecting God's greatness to our ability to conceptualize this. Many times the, this, this tension is solved by elevating human freedom well beyond God's sovereign control. But we are shown in the Bible that that's not the case. We must recognize that God is so great that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that it is out of our ability to say what God's sovereignty is able to do and not do over our will. If God is able to tell us that he is sovereign and that our will is free, he is the only one that can know how those go together. But we affirm his word that that is true. At the end of this, I I think a quote from Spurgeon is, is helpful. He was asked once, how do you reconcile these two truths of human responsibility and divine sovereignty? And Spurgeon, taking his uh, cue exactly from the scriptures, is, I find no need to reconcile friends. And that is where I stand on the subject as well. So God is always in control. That can renew our hopes because we know that even in the days of small things, God is in control. We do not have to worry about the results. We know that God will bring about his purpose. Now let us move to the second assurance from God's sovereignty that renews our hope. We see that God accomplishes what he plans. And here we look at verses 7, the last part of 7 to the first part of 9. I'll go ahead and read this section again to have it fresh in mind. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares 
the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So we see in this passage, or we're going to see in this passage, that God accomplishes what he plans. Now, before we go any further, what I'm about to do may injure some of your consciences, or I should say esteem, your esteem. But I think it is important that we recognize why God's sovereignty is essential to our hope. Can we just run on probabilities? Can we just say God is bigger, God is smarter, God is more powerful, but he's not completely in control? Can we go with just running the odds? He is super powerful, but not completely in control. Is that enough to assure us victory? Can we say that when we have a high probability, a near certain probability, that that is enough, that we don't need sovereignty at all? All right, well, let's go to the next slide. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the last game of the New Orleans Saints. But this is the actual win probability graph that was in front of us with only 14 seconds left in the fourth quarter. It was second down. The Vikings had the ball. They had no timeouts. They had to get 35 yards even to get a field goal. They could only throw to the corners, and they had to get out of bounds. I mean, the odds were well against them. 96% win probability that New Orleans was going to win this game. Put it in the bank with that kind of probability. Unfortunately, that is not how the game ended. The very next play swung 196%. Because in the next play, the touchdown was made by the Minnesota Vikings. What is this to tell us? But that we cannot just trust in a God who gives us a high probability that he will destroy evil. That he will give us a high probability that he will be victorious. Because in a world of probabilities, flukes and overturns and surprises and accidents happen all the time. And they can destroy the best laid plans. God's sovereignty must be complete for us to trust fully in his promises that God will accomplish what he plans. We see in in the book of Haggai here in the text that God does act and he acts on time. Yet once more he says, in a little while, I will. God is going to fulfill his plan. If we we, uh, keep track of the history of Israel, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., and the people were exiled and taken to Babylon. And at, the, at, at, at that time, Jeremiah was given a prophecy by God that in 70 years, the exile will be over, that I will restore this people. And we know at the beginning of Haggai that we are in the year 520. We are in the year 520. Six years of that prophecy have gone by. And yet history will tell us that it was in 516 B.C., 70 years from the destruction of the temple, that this temple was completed. What but a sovereign God can assure that his plan 70 years in the future will happen exactly on time? 
He accomplishes what he wills. The text does not leave any room for doubt. He says, I will shake so that, meaning what I will do will be effective. It will accomplish what it is supposed to accomplish. And what is the the thing that is supposed to happen? Look carefully at this verse. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. What God is saying is that my sovereign will is going to build this temple, and this temple will be greater than the one that you knew in the past, the one that Solomon built. Was this fulfilled? Did this happen? Yes. If you go to Ezra chapter 6, you will see that it happened just as God described He said that the treasure of all nations, the gold and the silver of all nations, will come in to build this temple, and its glory will be better than it was in the past. In Ezra chapter 6, we find that going simultaneous with Haggai's ministry to the people is this diplomatic dispute between some of the enemies of Israel and Darius the king of Babylon. They have asked Darius to stop this temple from being built, to stop the work, to send out a decree. But Darius goes and he reads the situation, and he sends a decree that instead says, I want this temple built. I am going to give the Persian money that has been taxed from all the nations to build it, and also I want you to help in every possible way that you can. So when the Persian tax money comes in, money from all nations are pouring in to that temple to rebuild it. That is because God sovereignly accomplishes his plans. And he did it right on time. So that, we are told in Zechariah 4.10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of of Zerubbabel. All of these people who are are feeling futile in their work, he says, you are going to see Zerubbabel the king making the final measurements of this temple because it will succeed because my sovereign will has determined it. This is a great comfort, a great illustration for us of God's sovereignty. God is God because he declares the end from the beginning As we're told in Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We sit here looking at Haggai's story, and we recognize the truth of those words. As we move to the the third point, we see that God's sovereignty is always in control. God accomplishes what he plans. And third, God fulfills what he promises. The last part of verse 9, God says to these discouraged people, in this place, I will give peace. God promises peace, that this rebuilt temple will be a place of peace. Now, when God says, I will give peace, 
He is talking about the peace that comes from God. He is talking about not just the peace that comes from solving a conflict or ceasing a war. He is talking about the peace between God and man. He is talking about being made whole, being made complete, having peaceful relations with God and neighbor, experiencing reconciliation. I will give peace. And certainly, as we see, the completed temple served as the place of peace for the people of God. So again, we can see in a very near future sense, God's fulfilling this promise. Now, I've done, I think, a pretty good job of keeping you from asking a question that I was asking the whole time I was working through this text. It seems like the prophecy is a little bit bigger than just what happened in 516 B.C. That that temple and that peace isn't quite all of what God seems to be describing. I would say, as, as I have read this text, listen to it again, that the former glory of this house will be great, that, that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, and that in this place I will give peace. It just sounds like maybe there's more to what God is promising here than what was brought to completion in 516 B.C. As I look at it, I, I kind of have what, what I would call a, a baggy pants feel about this, about this prophecy. I mean, yeah, 516 B.C., the legs go in the, the pant holes, and with a little bit of a tightened belt, the pants, the pants fit 516 B.C. But it does seem like there's a bigger pair of legs, a little bit more solid person to fill those pants than what we have in 516 B.C. And so I think it is worth remembering that prophecy sometimes has a near and partial fulfillment that is meant to point towards a more distant and greater fulfillment. And I think that is happening here. Because the glory and the peace that Haggai is describing simply projects a larger shadow than the rebuilt temple is able to cast. It doesn't mean that it doesn't cast that shadow to a degree, but there seems to be more that needs to stand in front of that shadow for this prophecy to be completely fulfilled. Now many in the history of the church have fixed on these words, the desired of all nations, which the ESV calls the uh, treasures of all nations. And they have said, this right here is a prophecy of the Messiah. Perhaps you have sung in a couple Christmas songs, I think Joy to the World has uh, the desired of all nations come, or come, O Lord Emmanuel. Anyways, the, the phrase desired of all nations, which shows up in our Christmas carols, is coming straight from this text, Haggai 2.7, and has been understood by many people to be describing the coming of the Messiah that he is the desired of all nations. But the, the, the challenge that we have here is it's very hard to see that that uh, view fits the context. If we look at the text carefully, look again at verse 7. And I will shake all nations, the treasures of all nations shall come in. Treasures and desired are, are just different translations for the same Hebrew word. It is hard to see that a prophecy of the Messiah, the Messiah himself, 
is being described there because the context points to two things. It's pointing to uh, the desired thing coming from the nations, not being the, the, the thing that the nations are coming to see. The desired things are coming from the nations. So the direction of this prophecy doesn't agree with the Messiah, which comes to Jerusalem and then the people uh, go and then it goes out. So that is not that does not fit. So if it's not the Messiah, are we supposed to understand that all that Haggai was talking about and all God was communicating was material resources, material treasure, gold and silver? Certainly that fits the text literally. But as I was looking at this text, it 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 became a possibility to me that the Hebrew doesn't only have to refer to material possessions. The same word that is being translated treasures or desired can be used to describe persons and people. It does this from time to time in the scriptures. One of the uh, uh, Babylonian kings was called the desired of all women. He was a ladies' man, but he had the same Hebrew here. So he was a person that was being called the desired of women. Um, Something that King and I might not have in common. (laughs) So here's my question. Perhaps the glory that God is looking to fill his temple is not just the treasures of the nations when he says that the desired of all nations will come in. Perhaps he also has in mind the worship brought by precious peoples, by the peoples of all these nations. Now that opens up an interesting line of of inquiry. If we go to Mark chapter 11, verse 17, we find Jesus getting angry as he comes to the temple, clearing out the money changers. And do you know what he says as judgment to the temple in his clearing of the temple? He said, this is to be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the purpose of the temple was not simply to be a treasure house of gold and silver and fine things. It was always meant to be the place where the prayers from the people of all nations could come to the one true God. And Jesus in his anger as he comes to the temple, sees that this great purpose that God has had for the temple has been frustrated and undermined by the greed and the self-righteousness of the people in Jerusalem of that day. And what is interesting, when Jesus clears the temple in John chapter 2, verse 19, he says these words, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the disciples understood that this temple was not referring to the physical uh, stone and wood temple, but was referring to the body of Jesus who would three days be raised from the dead after he was crucified. But do you see what Jesus has done here? He has transferred in that phrase the temple of God from the physical structure to himself. He is this temple. The temple is Jesus, because Jesus becomes the meeting place between God and man. 
And when Jesus completes his ministry, he says in Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, commanding them all that I have taught you. Do you see how Jesus has now brought himself as the temple and is now going out to reach all nations? So I submit to you that the desired of all nations is the Messiah's people. The Messiah's people. And we see in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the fulfillment of what Haggai promised, or what the Lord promised through Haggai. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see then that the fulfillment of God's promise that was given to Haggai, it fit 516, but it was baggy pants. But when Jesus came, the temple transferred from a physical place to a person. And in Jesus Christ, we discover that the temple of God is the infilling of all nations. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Do you see what has happened? God's temple is not stones and wood. God's temple is the people from all nations who have received the message of peace, the gospel of grace and life through the life and death of Jesus Christ, and have come together into the church. The Messiah's people are the desired of all nations, and we are part of it. We are part of God's precious house. Our fellowship, our coming together, our trusting in the gospel is making us living stones that declare the glory of God, that demonstrate to the people around us, this is the place of peace. This is the place of reconciliation between God and man. We are united to Christ who has made us one with the Father and one with one another. God's promise to Haggai is being fulfilled in us. This promise that seems so old and obscure is for you. In Christ is the place that God will give peace and a peace that will never go away, a peace that will never be diminished. So I ask you right now, have you, those sitting here, received the peace of God that only Christ can offer? Have you come to him, a precious and chosen stone, who laid down his life on a cross to pay for our sins, that all who put their faith in him will be washed clean and made righteous 
and made a, 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 a participant in the household of God will be so precious and beautiful in the eyes of our Lord that he says, I make my temple with you. You are the glorious stones of my temple. You are precious in my sight. He offers that to all who receive the gospel, who wash their sins away in the blood of Christ and accept his righteousness by faith alone. So as we finish, (coughs) we see that There are three assurances from God's sovereignty that renews our hope. God is always in control. God accomplishes what he plans. God fulfills what he promises. God's sovereignty is what we need to renew our hopes in the day of small things, in the day of great fears, and in the days of temptations, because in it we find the only place that will never be shaken. I want to leave you with three takeaways. Because God is sovereign, first, we can trust his promises fully. Second, we can look forward to a glorious future. The latter days will be greater than the former. And third, we can focus on simple faithfulness. You don't have to calculate whether obedience and faithfulness is worthwhile. There is no futility in our faithfulness because it is the only thing that works to build the temple of God. It is the only thing that will last for eternity. I, quote, I, I want to end with a quote from D.A. Carson, who I think illustrates this way. He says, 50 billion years from now, if I may speak of eternity in the categories of time, no one will be talking about the significance of Stalin or Pol Pot, but every cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will still be remembered and celebrated because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Simple faithfulness is never futile when we serve a sovereign God. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.